This morning, our Bible reading is from Acts chapter 17. We start from verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this Barbara trying to say? Others remarked it. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are pre presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we, we would like to know what they mean. All the avians and the foreigners who live there spend the time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in the temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everybody, everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of the lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own people, poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a, date, set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people, be some of the people became followers of Paul and, he and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a, a woman named Damaris, and, um, and a number of others. This is God's word. Thanks, Chairman. Morning, everyone. 
Morning to those who are at home. Thank you for joining us. Pastor Tracy is in London still and obviously very weary. She returns this week. I think it's Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. She gets back and whatever. And she's preaching next Sunday on Mother's Day. So pray for her that uh, God would energise her. I think she's done a fair bit of the preparations for the message before she left. I think. Not sure. But either way. She's just going to have to suck it up and deliver, isn't she? <laughs> I was talking to Rebecca before service and uh, Glen- Glenda, is it? That young, that lady that um, at Condamine who had can- discovered cancer after their trip last year and has been battling with that. Uh, just on the way home on Monday afternoon, uh, Beck got a text saying that she's broken her C2 when the top of her spine just below the skull there so that's who Scott was praying for and they've gone to Toowoomba Hospital so continue to pray for Glenda and Des, Des. yep um, so Pastor Tracy London coming back uh, Pastor David is away this morning he's at uh, the Tabernacle back in Brisbane uh, he's uh, preaching there and they're doing a book launch of those who particularly served I think out of the Baptist Church but maybe out of the Tabernacle specifically in the, in the wars World War Two, World War One. There's been a book written about that and Dave's going to be doing a, a prayer as an army chaplain, obviously, and then also preaching. So remember to pray for him as well. Um, there was something else I was going to say and I can't remember. Oh, we have a new king. Yes. <laughs> Did you see the coronation? Yes. Many of you? There are several parts of it that I love. There were some of it that just drove me nuts. But I loved right at the beginning, I won't get the words right, but right at the beginning, Charles comes in, King Charles comes in and is seated, and this boy, 10, 11, 12-year-old, comes and stands in front of him and says, in the name of the King of Kings, I welcome you to this place, something like that, in the name of the King of Kings, there's a reminder, isn't it? You're the King of England, wow, you're under his authority. And that was reminded all the way through the service, wasn't it? That God is the one who placed you here. God is the one who's giving you this job. These are your responsibilities. Fulfill them faithfully. So we need to pray, as the scripture instructs us, for our new king, for King King Charles, and for his wife, Queen Camilla. Uh, I thought it was also touching how William, when he bowed before him and gave his allegiance, also leant over and touched the crown and then... Gave his dad a kiss on the cheek. That was lovely, wasn't it? I don't know if you could pick it up, but William was saying, the crown is mine. (laughs) (laughs) And at some point in the service, they also said, long live the king. And I turned to Rhonda and said, did William say that? (laughs) Not sure. I say that just because I think it's humorous, but I do respect our new king and I will be praying for him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, King of Kings, we bow before you and ask that you might visit us this morning with your spirit, enlighten us through your word, the one that has your word, which has authority over us, enlighten us, challenge us, And help us, Lord, and motivate us to be obedient to you, our King. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said?
Adaptable Witnessing. This is our last talk that we're going to be working through the book of Acts on. We can easily come back at some other point in the future and revisit because we've jumped over a whole lot of very good stuff. Uh, but next week I wanted to start a series that will go for six weeks, take us up to the school holidays, which will be on the Holy Spirit. And we've been talking a lot about the Holy Spirit, obviously, through the book of Acts. But we wanted to focus specifically on the Spirit. <clears throat> for there are many believers who seem to have not a clear understanding of what the scriptures teach us about this very important member of the triune God. So that's where we're going into our immediate future. Our focus for 2023 has been, is being, uh, God's chosen instruments who are concerned for others at every opportunity. God's chosen instruments. Jesus says, I pick you. I want you to be my witness in the place, in the family and in the place where you have an influence. And as God's chosen instruments, remember, we are committed to God every day, connecting with one another every week. So here this morning, connecting with one another, not just in the worship service, but before and after the worship service as well, of chatting with one another and supporting one another and getting to know one another. And then thirdly, focusing on reaching others at every opportunity. That's where we've been emphasising through this series in Acts. God is already at work ahead of us. The Holy Spirit is the lead evangelist. We each have a role to play. Doesn't matter what it is, how small or how large. But the reality is, as Ryan Valley reminded us, that we are simply joining a conversation that God is already having with people out there. If you've been coming to Alpha, and we've been enjoying that, it's amazing to have conversations with people and to see their worldview, the filter they have of their understanding of what God is like or their understanding of Jesus or their understanding of how you um, live your life in such a way that you'll be acceptable to go to heaven. Uh, one of the ladies in our group, and there are, I think, about 10 groups or so, uh, one of the ladies seriously asked me, she said, and she has two dogs, and she said, do dogs go to heaven? What would you say? I said, I think dogs go to heaven, but cats don't. <laughs> if you're a cat lover, suck it up. The Apostle Paul was a remarkable follower of the Lord Jesus, um, who was able to adapt himself to whatever situation he was in. And you see that all the way through Acts. Um, a remarkably gifted person whom God had shaped over um, his up upbringing as well as his religious experience, but then ultimately coming to conversion and belief in the Lord Jesus. A man with a huge, it would appear, a huge intellect who was comfortable in all extremes of society. Like in this chapter where he is dialoguing with the Athenian academics, the top 30 elite in Athens, which is the Oropagus, or in the marketplace and talking to um, very normal, ordinary people and being able to present the gospel in ways to them which is acceptable or understandable. He could adapt himself and we need to be the same. Um, 
It would be a pity for us as followers of the Lord Jesus to have a gospel presentation and it's whether it's four spiritual laws or two ways to live or whichever one you have and for you to be locked into that and not to be adaptable. That your form of witnessing is you, uh, God loves you and he's got a wonderful plan for your life and you go through the four spiritual laws and would you like to pray and receive Jesus? And the person says, no. And you think, well, I've done my bit. When you haven't really connected, you haven't really communicated, all you've done is dump on them. So in this passage, I want us to learn from the Apostle Paul and his witness. He is on his second missionary journey and in chapter 16, which is where we were last week, is in Philippi. He's now left Philippi and moved on. He's left Luke back there in Philippi to look after the new church. Silas and Timothy have come with him. They've gone to Thessalonica where Paul's pattern was that he would go into the synagogue, speak first to the Jews, because they believed in one God and they had the Old Testament, they had the scriptures. He would speak to them how the scriptures show that Jesus is the Messiah. And often that would lead to some people becoming followers. And then he would go from the synagogue to the outside community. That was his regular pattern. And interestingly, he moves on from Thessalonica, where he gets belted and bashed up a little bit, to Berea. And again back into the synagogue and he teaches them from the scriptures the interesting difference is in Berea the scripture tells us in verse 11 the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so and I hadn't noticed it before but the scripture says this in verse 4 this is after Thessalonica some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. A God-fearing Greek is a person who is Gentile, not Jewish, Gentile, but who has moving towards, I like the Old Testament, I like that idea of one God, and they associate with, but they're not fully Jewish and they're not fully converted, but they're called God-fearers. Some of them became followers, some in Thessalonica. But in Berea, where they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. As a result, many of them believed. Interesting, isn't it? Some, Thessalonica, many in Berea. That's the significance of the scriptures for us. God's word is God's power. And again, uh, a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. That brings us to now, Paul leaves Berea and he heads down to Athens. He leaves Timothy and Silas there. Now he's gone on by himself. And he's moved down to almost the cultural centre of, of the Greek world. And when he gets there, he follows the same sort of pattern. Athens was famous for its architecture, Parthenon. Famous for mathematicians, Pythagoras. Famous for its astronomy, for its philosophy, Plato and Aristotle. It was the place that we have, even in our Western world today, liberty, law, democracy and parliament. All has a Greek origin. It's transported all the way around the world. In Athens, there are particularly three hills to take note of. I'll call them hills. There is the Agora which is like the marketplace. So when it says Paul went out into the marketplace, it's the Greek word is the agora, a place of commerce and the markets. There's the Areopagus, which we read about in this passage. That's the university. That's the hill in the middle where the council sits. Um, 
and it was led by 30 of the intellectual elites and they were the ones who made decisions about how Athens would be governed and what the values would be and so on. Paul got invited to speak to them and then of course there's the Acropolis, the uh, religious centre. So Paul comes to Athens and he's walking around this magnificent city and it's his pattern. So he reasoned in the synagogue again with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, the Agora, day by day, um, with those who just happened to be there. I like that. It's a divine appointment. God brings people across your path and they'll ask you a question or they'll make a comment or they'll hear you say something. It's just God is at work. The Holy Spirit is the lead evangelist. He's out there ahead of us and we're just joining him, linking chains, linking, putting links in the chain and so on. Paul reasoned in the synagogue and some of them will become believers and that was weekly that wasn't enough for the apostle Paul so every day he went to the marketplace and would talk to whoever would listen and it's a conversation he's not on his soapbox shouting out though there very well may have been occasions and opportunities for him to do that because in the marketplace there was freedom of speech people could share all sorts of things so he got the attention there's a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. <clears throat> um, these, they're not the only ones, but they're the two main ones that are there. The Epicureans are those who have an attitude which still persists today uh, that when you die, that's it. So eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. The Epicureans were all about life here and now. It's all about pleasure. Decrease pain, increase pleasure. Have a good time. Enjoy yourself. There are gods, but they're not involved in our world. Um, and like, he's, like I said, when you die, that's it. You go into nothingness. That was the Epicureans. Um, and it sounds reasonably common today, doesn't it? They, in fact, believe that the world came into existence by the random collision of particles. Sound familiar? People today believe the same. The chief end of life is the absence of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. So have a good time. Do what you can. The Stoics, on the other hand, are the opposite of that. They believe that they were the gods, but the gods were permeating everything. Everything is God. We're part of God. The trees are part of God. The, the rocks are part of God. Uh, we've had this divine spark within us, and when we die, that divine spark goes back to God. We're just part of this creation. It's more materialistic. And it was really the endurance of uh, grin and bear it. When bad things happen, just suck it up and get on with it. That would be their motto, grin and bear it. Moderation in all things would also be their motto. And they were fatalists. Whatever is going to happen will happen and there's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is cope as best you can. Well, in the midst of all of these gods, and several sources have said this, it sounds unbelievable, but several sources have said that in Athens, as you walked around, there were 30,000 temples, idols, statues, altars. 30,000 representations of other gods. There were 10,000 people who lived in Athens. You could more easily bump into a god than you could into a person in Athens. That's why it sounds a little bit unbelievable, but it's an emphasis of saying Athens was incredibly religious. The Apostle Paul's walking around, and as it says way back in the verse somewhere, um, 
that he was agitated, he was distressed by all of this. Not, I don't think, at the Athenians, but rather at their spiritual blindness, at the evil one who he knew the first two commandments, you know, no other gods before me and no images of me. And Paul knew that and it disturbed him in his soul. And as he's walking around, looking at all of these idols, it says he was examining their objects of worship closely. He came to one which was called, was an altar. There was no statue, just an altar. And on the altar is an inscription to the unknown God. To the unknown God. In Greek, it's the agnostic, agnosto, theos. Interesting. To the God that we don't know. 500 years before this, in Athens, there had been a plague. There had been a disaster. And they didn't know which God that they had offended. So somebody came up with the idea that they would get this whole lot of hundreds of sheep and they would put them at one end of the main street and they would have the sheep simply walk down and down the main road of Athens and that the God where they stopped the nearest God to that, that would be the one that they had offended and that they would have to sacrifice to and appease. Well, they released the sheep and the sheep went all the way down the street. They didn't stop in front of any God. They went out into the green fields, which makes sense. So the Athenians drew the conclusion, there must be another God that we don't know about who has caused this. We can't build a statue of him because we don't know what he looks like. So let's build an altar. And the inscription says, to the unknown God. And to him they would offer sacrifices. The Apostle Paul sees that and he goes, I have my connection. I have my preaching point. And then these people are listening to Paul in the Agora, in the marketplace. What is this babbler trying to say? We don't understand his words because he's, he's giving the gospel. He's talking about Jesus and he's talking about the resurrection. Some of them said, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Why they said that was because he spoke about Jesus, male, and the resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection is Anastasius. Sounds like an English word for Anastasia. Female. And in Greek, the word for resurrection is feminine. So they thought Jesus was talking about a male and a female God. People have filters. They have misunderstandings. Things that we know and that we take for granted, they don't know. They're walking in the dark. And so because of that, they come to Paul and they say, uh, they took him, but they brought him to the meeting of the Oropagus, to this hill in the centre where the 30 uh, elite were, the council. He's brought them before them, not arrested to be on trial, but rather we want you to inform our, our civic leaders of what you're trying to see, say. We, we want to know more about this. What does it mean, this truth that you're presenting? And so the Apostle Paul goes, and so God has opened the door for him to go into this situation, which is remarkable, isn't it? That here is a Jew in a foreign city being invited by some significant philosophers and leaders in Athens to come and speak to their elite. You're bringing strange ideas, Paul. We would like to know more about it. They didn't have TVs in those days or radios. What you do at night? Well, you sit around talking. And the scripture says that the Athenians love nothing more to sit around and what's the latest idea? You're from another city. You're from another country. What's the news? What's going on? Just like our news. They like to, they're more interested in what is new than they are in what is true. 
it's entertaining. And so that's part of the motivation for why they're inviting Paul. But nonetheless, Paul takes it up that afternoon. He heads up to the Areopagus, and this is how he begins. He stood up in the meeting, and he says, People of Athens, I, now note this. I see that in every way that you are very religious. What doesn't he say? You bunch of no-good-for-nothing pagans, you're worshipping false gods and false idols. Doesn't do that. He identifies with them. He's polite. I see that in every way you're very religious. 30,000 statues and temples and idols. You guys are obviously devout. You obviously believe there's a supernatural. You obviously believe there's something else demonstrated by the idols that you have. So he's positive in his affirming. I see that you're very religious. Um, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar which said to an unknown God. Well... I know that you, you're ignorant, same Greek word, um, agnosis. Uh, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. That's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the unknown God, the God that you don't know. I know him. I want you to forget the other gods for the moment. Let's focus on him. And then he goes on to say, the God who made the world and everything in it. He doesn't open his Bible. He doesn't use Old Testament texts. He tells them the Bible story. And sometimes we need to do that. The Jehovah's Witnesses will knock on your door and they have Bible texts. They will quote texts at you, but they don't know the Bible story. You know the Bible story. If you don't, that's one of the things you need to learn. You need to be adaptable. Where is this person up to in, this, in, the, in their understanding of the story? Because until you get the story and how it fits together, it won't make sense. So the Apostle Paul gives us this wonderful model, this wonderful demonstration. He begins with creation. There is one God, and that God made everything. It's not 30,000 gods. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in man-made structures. And he's fully self-sufficient. He doesn't need to be served by us. He doesn't need our sacrifices or anything like that. In fact... He's the one who gives us everything that we have. He provides for us life, breath, and everything else. This unknown God is the sovereign God. From one man, this sovereign God, the unknown God, has made from one man, Adam, from one couple, all of the nations of the world. The Greeks used to think that they were the best. They used to look down on all other ethnic groups and groups of people um, and used to call them barbarians, because it sounds like that's sort of Greek here, what the language sounded like. It sounded like ba, 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 ba. And they call them barbarians. God made everybody. No one's better than anybody else. And not only did God do that, but God is the one who sovereignly allocates the time in history when they will be and also the location geographically of where they will be. God is the one who designs the atlas. He's the one who moves the boundaries of the lands. He's in control. People try to assert themselves and push and gain more and everything else, but only at God's permission or allowance. He is in control. God did this. Why? The Apostle Paul very boldly tells them, the God who made everything, the God who gives you everything, God wants you to seek him. God wants you to reach out to him. God wants you to find him. And in fact, wonderful verse, this is Paul speaking to a group of non-Christians. 
God is not far from any one of us. God is not far from you. Sin has separated us from God, yes, but God is not way off in the distance so that we can't find him, search for him or anything else. He is right here. We were separated from God, but he's made the trip to here. All you have to do is stop and turn around and he's right there and his arms are open and embracing you. That's sort of like what the Apostle Paul is saying. He did this to seek him, to reach out to him and find him. God wants us in a relationship with him. And then Paul, from memory, quotes two Gentile poets, which they would have known, they were famous, and these poets get quoted in other writings in the ancient world. For him we live and move and have our being. Or, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. God is like us. Or we are like him. He's not a stone, he's not a statue, he's not an image made of gold or silver or anything else. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... He is our creator. We should not think that he is like that, all of those 30,000 images. In the past, I don't understand this, but in the past, God has overlooked this ignorance. That's the unknown word, this unknownness. To the unknown God. In the past, God has overlooked this unknownness, this ignorance. But now, he is commanding all people everywhere to change their minds, to repent, to turn back to him. And he has set a day when he is going to fix the world. He's going to judge the world. He is a loving, personal, compassionate God who wants us to know him. But he's also very serious about fixing up all of the evil and the wrong in the world. And he set a day for that to happen. And not only has he set a day, he's appointed a man to be the judge. And not only has he appointed a man to be the judge, he's given proof of all of this by raising him from the dead. The Epicureans, once you're dead, you're dead. So when they hear about the resurrection of the dead, they sneered, laughed. That's ridiculous. Just like some people in our world will say too, dead people don't live again. When you're dead, you're dead. Not true. It's not true. Jesus rose from the dead. But others said, so one group is rejection. Another group is saying, that's interesting. I'd like to hear some more about that. Can, you know, can we catch up after this and have a cup of coffee or whatever? Some of the people, not just we're curious and we want to know more, some of the people said, we believe. They followed Paul and they said, I get it. Among them is a guy called Dionysius. He's one of the 30. He's one of the leading elite, intellectual elites of Athens at the time, as well as a lady whom I don't know, but Damaris. And I assume she's a pretty significant lady in, the, in that period of time because she is named in the scriptures, as well as a number of others. Interesting story, isn't it? What have we learned from all of this? Well, there are certainly questions available in print for your connect groups or for your own personal Bible study and everything else. And let me say this now. If you would like us to pray for you this morning, if you would like prayer after the service, then please simply come forward and pastors or elders who are here this morning will pray for you. What do we learn from this? Well, many today in our world still think life is all about happiness and pleasure. Many today think they are the captain of their own soul, the master of their own fate. 
The very idea that they will die and rise to meet their maker, that one day they'll stand before Jesus, they don't like it. They don't want it. Except for those the Holy Spirit is working in, softening their hearts and drawing him. And he's going to bring them across your path. So you need to be open and attuned. And be aware of this. I've done this sort of thing before, but there are some people who respond. There are five ways people respond to the gospel. It's not your job to save people. Your job to tell people. It's not your job to make people come to Alpha. It's your job to invite them. Invite them. If they say no, don't lose any sleep over it. It's up to the Holy Spirit. It's up to God. That's his job, not ours. Our job is to invite. Our job is to share a response to the opportunity as God opens it. It's not our job to convert people. We can't. So don't try and dump a whole lot on people all at once. Just take it one step at a time. Think about how you came to faith. There are people that you will talk to and they'll be very negative in their reaction. Number one, they will say, it's not true, it's ridiculous. I don't want it, not interested. God bless you. Let's have a cup of coffee. Love them, befriend them. But don't raise the issue again with them. Let them raise the issue with you. Number two, there are people who will say, that's very interesting, but I'm not interested, thanks. Uh, I'm not buying whatever you're selling. It's not for me, not for now. Number three, interesting what you're saying. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not fully convinced yet. Um, maybe I'd like to find out more. There'll be some people who say, I think what you're saying is true, but I'm not committed to it. That's very common in our world. People think things are true, but they don't do it. Do you think that washing your hands after you go to the toilet is a good, healthy thing to do? Not a trick question. Do you think washing your hands after you go to the toilet is a good, healthy thing to do? Yes. Do you do it? Yes. Liars. They did a survey of people at a service station and in both the male and female toilets they had these special electronic devices that when the taps went on to wash your hands, it was recorded. They asked the people going in, do you believe that it's a good thing to wash your hands after you come out of the toilet? Yes. 100% of the people said yes. When they checked the results, one third of the women didn't do it. A third! And two-thirds of the men didn't do it. <laughs> do you think it's a good idea? Yes. Do you do it? Mm -mm. I think that's true, but I'm not committed to it. That's how people will respond to the gospel as well. I think it's true, but it's not here yet. Give them time and let the Holy Spirit... And then there are people over here, which is the fifth and the only other one. I think it's true, and yes, I'm committed to it. You know, there are different people at all different sorts of uh, levels of commitment and so on. We all struggle. No one's perfect. But there is that line. You're either committed or you're not. It's as simple as that. Some believe and are committed. So, like the Apostle Paul, let us be polite, clear, respectful. And everybody said? Let's pray. <clears throat> 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you might sharpen us as your instruments. Help us to know you more and certainly know your story so that we can connect with others. We can listen to what they think. And Lord, could you prompt us, help us to know what to say and when and how to say it. Um, Teach us more about what you're like so we can talk comfortably about it. Help us to be patient and to let other people set this agenda. Lord, just use us. Help us to be prayerful, but not rude or pushy or forceful. We want to be instruments in your hands. And you are a patient, loving, gracious God. So, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and use us as we go forward into the days of this week. And now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and who by his grace has given us eternal life and good hope, may they encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and every good word. In Jesus' name, amen.